Escape from Plan A. Okay. Welcome back to the Escape from Plan A podcast. Uh, tonight we have Eliza, which is myself, Teen, hey. and Philip. How's it going? And we will be discussing David Chang's new show on Netflix, Ugly Delicious. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk about this because you kind of alerted us to it over the weekend. And I I uh, was like, uh, all right, I, guess I felt obligated to watch it because it's David Chang. And I, and, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no, I mean, I love the show. I absolutely loved it. I saw the trailer a couple months ago and I remember I remember like mentally filing it away like oh, I definitely have to catch that and I'm a fan of his cookbooks I've never been to I've never been to any of his restaurants oh really and his cookbooks are great yeah they're they're really good cookbooks and then I also cleared out my entire schedule on Saturday and woke up early to binge the whole thing so I was done the whole thing by like 2 p.m. and then that's when I went into the slack and I was messaging you guys like you guys have to check this out like it's a really good show. I can't believe you you binged that so quickly because I was like, oh, I'm going to binge this thing so we can maybe like talk about it or write an article or something. And like I just finished watching the last episode like days later. Every time I tell someone I'm binging a Netflix thing, it takes me like a week plus to do it. And they're like, you're doing it wrong, man. Yeah, you, you got to go just like take off that afternoon and do it hard. But what did anyway, you think? It was great. It was good. What did you uh, think of it, the show? It far surpassed my expectations. Um, I'm kind of one of the, the resident foodies, I guess, of the Plan A team. And uh, I have also been tracking this show for some time. And we know we've wanted to kind of do something about it. I think the big question in my mind with the show, because I heard it was not just food, but also a little bit of culture, politics, right? Maybe even race sprinkled in there, at least from what we could see in the trailer. I was like, okay, like the big question for me was, is David Chang woke? Right. Like, mm -hmm. is he saying mm -hmm. things that are actually interesting, original, pushing the boundaries, uh, hopefully for Asian Americans, you know, uh, and food, too. And um, the answer, I mean, to summarize it is yes, we'll get more into that. But yeah, I loved it. I was really worried that he was just going to do like an Asian version of Anthony Bourdain's show, like a travel <laughs> food show where he, you know, he kind of just ponders everything and he talks about he, he plays up street food. Which, which is kind of his thing. And I really liked his approach. I liked how he divided every single episode. And instead of devoting it to a specific region or country, he mm -hmm. actually devoted an entire episode to a certain kind of food. And it's all comfort food, you know? It's, mm -hmm. it's all foods that we are familiar with, like fried chicken, fried rice, tacos, dumplings. And it's, it's not food porn. No, it's not. No. Like, I really, I'm not a big fan of food porn. I think there's another series called Chef's Table. I don't know mm -hmm. if y'all have seen that. But yep. to me, like, when I hear Netflix food series, I think, oh, this is going to be like another Chef's Table. Mm -hmm. And I, I cannot stand Chef's Table. I absolutely hate Chef's Table. And it's to me, it's the epitome of food porn, which is, I think, the definition for me I've for food porn. I've never seen it. What, so they'll go and they'll they'll do it by chef. So each one is a profile of a very famous chef. And uh -huh. it's just totally like glowing and praising and basically like worshipping a food genius. Like each of them are like Mozarts, basically. 
you know, and, and so it, what it's, is it just like a giant commercial for each of their restaurants or like whatever I, book they're promoting? I would say so. That's kind of how I feel. And it and it's just uncritical in its praise of the genius of mm-hmm. some mad chef. And it just elevates. I don't know. It, it's just, I just get nothing out of it's like watching religious material to me. And Anthony mm-hmm. Bourdain isn't quite like that. I like Bourdain, too. I like No Reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, I love I love his show. Yeah, it's very and watchable. Parts Unknown, the new one. Yeah, but it, but to me, it's. I feel like he's. It's it's fun to watch, but he's a little glib with the self, the dissing of like how lame and corporate Americans are. Like that's how that's <laughs> his shtick, right? Is just like we yeah. eat crap. We got to learn from the rest of the world. I agree with that, but it wears uh-huh. a little thin. And I frankly think Eddie Eddie Huang's show is a little bit like that too. It's a lot of. It's like a self discovery kind of show. I love this show. And I felt compelled to write about it afterwards just because this is the first foodie show, an Asian-American show, I would say, where I felt like he was asking the question. He there was He's so skeptical. He's so unconvinced about this search for authenticity that I just felt like he was just getting himself deeper and deeper and deeper into the question. And it was very satisfying to watch. He really got me thinking about anti-assimilation, which is something that we all talk about a lot. And you know, I'm all for it. And he also got me thinking about what it means to be pro-Asian. That was unexpected for me. I was just going to say, like, I, I, I didn't expect that that pro-Asian part at all, right? I thought he was going to talk yeah. about politics, but kind of come at it from, like, a not white American, but, like, neutral, kind of race-free American look at politics. But it turned uh-huh. out to be pro-Asian in every single episode, <laughs> like, down to the last one. I did not even expect, I didn't really expect that. Even like the the littlest things, like the um, you know the um, home cooking episode mm-hmm. of think when he goes home to his parents' house for Thanksgiving and they're watching football and he, they're watching a Redskins game and just as a as a non sequitur he's like I'm gonna rename the Redskins the Chinks. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> you could tell. You get the sense he's really being himself. And I agree he's very pro Asian, but he's not glib about it. He is putting that to the test. He is saying that to people that don't agree with him, and he's yeah. he's giving mm-hmm. them a chance to respond to that. So it's not like a cheap pro Asian where he gets to control the narrative, and that's what I really liked about it. I mean, he's the people who were disagreeing with him were like the most noticeable ones were other Asians. Like he he basically just shits on Cajun food in their own restaurant in this Vietnamese owned restaurant in New Orleans, and says it would be so much better if all of them just did it the Viet Cajun way. And then, I mean, he even goes like back into the kitchen and he's still dissing their way when he sees the vats of... Um, blue crabs, I think, yeah. Blue crabs. Yeah, I mean, he was basically saying that the Viet's had a superior way of doing it. Why do, in, yeah. in Houston, why don't the, the Vietnamese in, in New Orleans do it? Philip, did you have a view on that? I thought that was a really interesting comparison. I, I didn't... They said they actually came up with it on the fly. They didn't know that they were going to be doing that until they got there. And it was just so fascinating that they framed this sh- entire episode around the question of why do the Vietnamese in Houston do Vietnamese-style boils and it's super popular and the local population loves it while acknowledging it's not, quote, authentic. And New Orleans, they're purists. They won't do it. They yeah. refuse it. Even the Vietnamese owners don't do it you know right their excuse was just like this is just the way it's always been done and then uh david just argues well the viet elevates the food i love that part where he says the viet's the one that elevates it the cajun food it's almost like he's going to bat for their food for their culture more than themselves right because he's really 
always right, arguing exactly. with them. Yeah. And also, I think like um, in in the last episode about uh, Italian stuffed pastas versus Asian dumplings. You know, to contrast that, he he actually like got a bunch of like old Italian nonas to agree with him that like they prefer, they really really enjoy Asian dumplings too. So it's interesting to see the different people play like play against his questions in a way that you may not expect. Yeah, she said, "Do you want me to get into an argument with every single Italian I know?" And he's like, "Yes, I do." Yeah. The thing is, I don't feel like, I mean, I'll just put it out there. I think he is the most compelling. After I saw, I was not, not a David Chang fan. I've been to, I went to Noodle Bar when, back in like 07, 08, when mm-hmm. it was the only one. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I went to Mopesh. I was like, I don't get this at all. If our listeners knew how much you and I, teen, you and I argue behind the scenes <laughs> about things. About David Chang. Well, you cook his stuff. So I don't even know what that's like. You know, I've, um, I've never been to his restaurants, but yeah. but I do. I, his cookbooks are the recipes are very tasty. But if if you had to wait in line with like you know fifteen fifteen to twenty East Village hipster uh, people in front of you before you could cook, and then in the whole time they were talking to each other about you know the nature of Asian cuisine the whole time, you you would hate it too. I'm sure I would, yeah. You know, I just don't think that he's satisfied. I think he is one of the most compelling people now after watching uh, Asian Americans, like public figures out there. Because I don't think he was happy making the point or landing the point that, say, this Italian woman actually secretly preferred wontons over tortellini, right? Mm-hmm. He it was, a, it was a funny little thing, but I don't think that's what he's after. I think... No, he's, he's not after that. I think he's, he's waiting for someone to provide him a, 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 a convincing explanation as to why Ding Taifeng's Xiaolongbao like sell for one third the price of high-end raviolis, right? He's like, uh-huh. I know how the restaurant business works. I know how, you know, I've done it all. I've done it all and I can charge a lot of money for my food. I mm-hmm. want to know why this Chinese restaurant, Ding Taifeng, not a David Chang restaurant, can't charge that. And he's like, I want an explanation why. And a lot of people give him compelling explanations. I thought Ali Wong, when he posed that same question to her, and she goes, you know, I think that white people are stupid. And they don't buy, you know, <laughs> she, she goes in this whole thing like they, they like to get hoodwinked and we're too smart for that. But that's Right, not- they care more about ambience and friendly service and clean bathrooms. And then she, she, there's this whole segment where she talks about how she wants to know how many Asian people gave a fall restaurant a five-star rating. Versus right, yeah. white people, because when she went to the same place, she was like, the broth was bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but see, I don't think that satisfies him either, because it's kind of like, well, you know, he's in the because she's buying into business. it, too. Yeah. Well, she's buying yeah, into and- it, too. And he, I don't think his question is these. Why are white people stupid enough to pay rav- pay for twenty dollar raviolis? He's like, why won't they pay twenty eight dollars for soup dumplings? You know, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that was it, it didn't answer that part of the question. Right. But here, here's the thing, and here's a bit of like context. I don't know if you know this about his Momofuku restaurants and why they were a big deal when they first opened up in the East Village. Was, it, I mean, the food was one thing and people would debate over whether or not it's good or not. You know, you guys have different opinions. I have different opinions about it. But one piece that was interesting that a lot of critics talked about was the ambiance piece, right? That mm-hmm. a lot of folks argue in Western restaurants is the reason why you're pay- paying the big bucks. But Momofuku was interesting because they took that kind of high-end dining, dining ambiance and pared it down, right? Like one thing that gets mentioned a lot in the early reviews was that backless seats. 
which completely changes the kind of vibe of being at a table and eating a meal together. You know what I'm saying? Like they're more stool-like, yep. for example, right? And you see that repeated in, I think, most of his restaurants, except for the very highest end ones. Um, and so I think he knows. He's he's aware of like the answer to his question, like why are we paying so much more for Italian than you know Vietnamese? But it's interesting that he gets people to converse about it in the show. And I actually don't know if you guys remember this, but in a in a bunch of the com- conversations he has with other chefs and and critics, he actually brings up the point of race first. Like he he asks like in a bunch of different segments, like is yeah, it yeah he brings it up often, yeah, right. in every episode. But I don't think he knows. I mean, I think he cracked. See, here's the thing. I think he did it, but I don't think he knows how he accomplished it, which is what he says, right? Like he he says, like I have no idea how this happened. Hmm. How how much of that is humbleness as like a chef, you know, on a TV show, and how much of that is actually? I think that's I think that's the thing that is the central driver of the show is his genuine confusion over or or <laughs> his genuine confoundment over why why is it that. He can sell it for that price, but mm-hmm. other Asian chefs cannot. Uh, you know, I think he has theories, but it's not like what I'm saying is it's not something that can be easily recreated. For some reason, you know, his Momofuku empire just took off. And he I think he wants to know he's trying to figure out what is what was it about this that that worked for me? Why can I do this? But it can't be mm-hmm. reproduced, you know, because I think he does want to reproduce it. For and he, I think he does want to see other Asian chefs, Korean chefs, Chinese chefs, etc., Filipino chefs succeed yeah. in that way. I, but it's it's hard. Not not necessarily re- reproduce it, but to get to that level of success and acceptability by uh, I don't know if it's just just white people, but everybody else get that level of hype. I think what he does know is that, and I this I did understand about like Noodle Bar when it opened was mm. it was the it was exciting. It was the first time that. You felt that you weren't in a bastardized version of a restaurant that really should be in Tokyo, mm-hmm. which is the mm-hmm. feeling that you get by going to Nobu, which is the feeling that you get by going to more, you know, to Budokan, which is the feeling that you get, you know, going to even Masa or something like that. Right. It's it is the New York branch of something. It's it's like. Like you go there and then you pretend you're in Tokyo. You know, the copies got more and more high end over time and the experience felt more and more like being in in the ones in Tokyo. They get very good. You have, you know, basement sake, you know, sake bars and all this stuff. I'll go with like we used to do business lunches at this place, Sakagura. When we had traveling MDs come to town, they'd be like, this is just like Tokyo. Wow. Right. That was the impression. And David Chang, you know, Momofuku finally was like, no, this cannot be found anywhere else but New York. And there was something authentic about it, which it didn't really strike a tone with me for some reason, but it really did feel something homegrown. Like you say, when you say authentic, you mean like, you mean authentically New York and not authentically Tokyo or Japanese. Authentically New York, homegrown. Like the, you're having the original experience here on 10th Street and 1st Ave or where, you know, like this is the, this is the center of this experience. It was the first time, I think, that people were having that experience when it came to Asian cuisine, that this was not something, this was not like, you know, you didn't get that feeling like, oh, you know, this is so good. I bet you in Tokyo, it's heavenly, (laughs) you know, you know what I'm saying? And it it just, it just really had that sense of authenticity and you're, you're getting not a copy, but the original. And he, I think he's trying to crack the code as to what that is, because cracking the code to that 
I think actually gets into the heart of like personal identity, right? So that's why I think he's, I mean, I, I felt the show was a relentless exploration of that question. It was about authenticity. What makes, you know, this wood smoked kalbi not really Korean? Why do you, you know, why yeah. do you say it's not Korean? And then the Americans say it's mm-hmm. not American. Right. Well, he's definitely challenging tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he seems really, really frustrated by the way that people just refuse to change and their whole defense of why they don't want to change. Like, he's all about who cares about tradition. Let's just make it delicious. In the crawfish, which episode was that? The one where they're in Houston, the crawfish yeah. over shrimp, Houston, or yeah. shrimp yeah. over crawfish. That one, he's just like, like that whole little animation thing to me was, was basically saying if people can't accept crawfish over shrimp or like shrimp over crawfish it's like imagine how hard it is for people to accept people of a different ethnicity you know Mm -hmm. like if they can't do that little thing right then how are they ever going to be able to accept like you know how are they ever going to be able to see things like real big picture like where it really matters that that was also the episode where they get into like the whole kkk versus the vietnamese right yeah you've got the kkk getting involved when vietnamese refugees in in louisiana wanted to get into the shrimping business and that didn't happen in houston yeah that that part was actually a little bit unsatisfying to me because they didn't i really wanted to like know more about that piece and that history i I Mm -hmm. didn't really look it up afterwards but um because there was uh, the guy who was talking to the shrimper was basically saying like you know we had this conflict i think there was even like murder or something going on and eventually at some point the vietnamese were accepted because i think the folks who lived there originally saw what value they were bringing as you know hardworking new mm-hmm. immigrants or refugees right um but i'm sure there's more to it there and it just kind of gives you a little taste of what was going on but not the whole story. Yeah. That is, I agree. I think that is the show at its weakest. Is it, I'm not saying that the show was perfect. And in fact, I think it was mm-hmm. mostly imperfect. But you could see um, a real skeptic. Like, that's what I want. I want to see skepticism. I want to see people not satisfied with the answers. And I felt like the ending of that episode was a little bit satisfied with the answers. You know? And then... Because <laughs> okay. it was. It was... And I think there, I think there was a sensitivity towards Houston because... Uh, I think that they they were there filming like right before the hurricane. That's right. There was that little uh, piece at the end saying like donate if you can. And I felt like that that episode was a bit of a love letter to Houston. It was probably the most sappy and uh, the most tidily wrapped episode. It was it was very it was wrapped mm-hmm. really well. And uh, there was a, so some sentimentality to it. And it ended on this sort of hopeful note. It ended on a hopeful note for Houston. But I don't think it ended on a hopeful note for Louisiana because he has a meal with one of the Vietnamese shrimpers or restaurant owners and his mom, and they start talking about immigrants. And it's a oh it's my a God. pretty it's a pretty um it's a pretty it, it dark was, conversation. It, and and yeah, even was, David yeah, Chang yeah. is just like uh, I don't I don't. And know it was what. kind of funny. You couldn't really tell like what conclusion they got to by the end of it. They were kind of just like. You know, well, because it just cuts to like David Chang like, standing outside and just saying like, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. Like, how can you how can you think that? And yet you're one of those people, too. This family was basically saying like, you know, we, we it took us 10 years to get there. These new immigrants are skipping the line. Islam is not, yeah. you know, this. And it's, you're like, holy shit, here we go. So, so let me I mean, let me yeah. ask you guys something like a bit personal about that. Like, have you experienced that at all with kind of previous generation or not previous, but like. Um, slightly older Asian Americans. Yes, yeah, I can. I, I see a lot of older Asian Americans that that feel that way. Definitely. 
Yeah, because I've definitely had that experience too. Um, like very personally, my my parents are are Vietnamese refugees, and we've had conversations recently about you know the Syrian refugee crisis uh, and how people in in Canada and Toronto here are taking in refugees. And I was trying to get a feel for like how they felt about maybe participating in something like that or donating, and they were just very similar response of you know you can't trust those people. There's some dangerous people out there. We worked hard to get in here. Like the piece that he showed there really resonated with me personally because I've seen that as well, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know like there's other parts of the show that also resonate with Asian Americans where the conversations that get kind of hard are also familiar. Yeah, that's a pretty unique view, I think, for Vietnamese refugee community, right? It's kind of similar to the Cuban, to the Cuban refugee mm-hmm. community, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're kind of they kind of seem parallel in a way. Interesting. Very, very specifically similar. Cubans. Cubans, yeah. Specifically Cubans. Yeah, but but these are like tough introspective conversations, and I was like really applauding, you know, the show for exploring that. Like that was like what I said. It blew my expectations away. It was pieces like that that made me think, like, oh man, like this really went from food to something much deeper. They put it on Netflix, dude. I barely feel comfortable talking about it with you on this podcast. <laughs> and you know, they're putting it on. Oh, Netflix was incredible. I mean, do you guys consider that to be mainstream at this point? Like, do you think that a lot of people are going to see this show and, like, talk about it? Definitely. I think it's probably, I I think that that conversation is probably going to be mind-blowing for a lot of people. I mean, not for for Asian Americans and certainly not second generation, but I feel like, I feel like white people that watch it are probably in such shock if they hear something like that. It would be interesting to to sit down and rewatch this with some just like straight up white people and see what they say about, you know, these conversations. Yeah. There is a bit of cognitive dissonance when you hear, like, you see an older Asian man with a thick southern accent basically saying that he's like a proud redneck <laughs> yeah and you know speaking glowingly of white people and southern southerners and you know talking bad about islam and you're like and immigrants in general get out yeah. Stuff yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know yeah it was like some get out yeah. stuff over here and i like that he didn't yeah he didn't hold back he was just like yeah. that's bullshit just say what you think man you know i i think that's what it is like i see him as a very authentic voice because he doesn't hold back for 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 the cameras and you know and i was surprised actually that like you know i wrote that article and, and some people were commenting on it about how asian guys presumably were writing like yeah you know david chang's a dick i don't like this guy he's known as a scream yeah, i don't know he just comes across as some you know whatever yeah. and i think we're not used to seeing i'm used to seeing it for some reason I mean, there's some similar like he grew up near me you're right. He's from Vienna, Virginia. Yeah, he's from yeah. Yeah, he's from Vienna. Yeah, I don't know. I I you know I I chalk it up a little bit to being from that area because uh, I, I I just feel like we didn't really have to censor ourselves, but we had a lot to say. But it, I think a lot of people are not used to seeing even Asian American men are not used to seeing other Asian American men be so blunt in what they say. Mm-hmm to the point of being bothered by it when they see it. And they're like, yeah, there's something wrong with this guy, you know. One of my one of my favorite David Chang stories is um, from a while ago, probably when Momofugu first opened. So there was like this story in the newspaper that uh, before the noodle bar was a huge hit and like people were lining up every night to get in. He got this phone call from some vegetarian lady who was just screaming at him because it was miscommunicated to her that the broth that came with her order was vegetarian and it wasn't. And she was screaming at 
him, like, mm-hmm. you can't do this to the vegetarians. So he was so pissed off that the very next day he removed every single vegetarian dish from his menu, <laughs> except for like the ginger scallion noodles. And then he added pork to every other dish. That's that's crazy. That's I mean that's a that's a definition of unapologetic, right? Well, like I mean it was written up in the newspaper yeah. and that should have been like a PR nightmare for his restaurant, but uh-huh. instead it basically just it added to to more of like the legend of David Chang and like all the hype. The legend. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he it's, yeah. it's when you think about it, it's like this is his very first restaurant. He wasn't a huge hit yet. He didn't have like the Momofuku Empire yet. He didn't have Lucky Peach yet. He didn't have like he was still mm-hmm. in his mid-20s. And it's a sizable empire now. Like I, I don't really pay attention to him because I Like that was that was a pretty risky thing to do to just be like, you know what? Fuck you, vegetarians. And this is like in New York City. Back then too. There yeah, and back then where it was that like if you did it now, you'd probably reliably be considered <laughs> a hero. But um you know, which is funny because he's actually like an investor in um in uh, Impossible Burger, and the first restaurant in New York City to serve the Impossible Burger, which is that like Silicon Valley veggie mm-hmm. patty, um, was Momofuku Nishi. Yep. I've been meaning to try that. So actually, he, <laughs> he came full circle. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty good. I, I've had it. It's not great, but it's pretty good. <laughs> how how much of the um, the kind of like awesomeness of his move there, like doing the whole fuck vegetarianism thing, how much of that? was tied to race, you think? Like, going back to your point, Tina, about him being very radical. I'm sure a lot of it was tied to race because I tend to think of vegetarianism. Like, I know that... So in the Philippines, they don't have many vegetarians because we're a, we're a Catholic country. And the only time we go mm-hmm. vegetarian is, like, we eat fish for Lent, you know, on Fridays and Lent. But I know that, right. like, a lot of Buddhist countries are vegetarian. And yet I still consider vegetarianism and veganism to be, like, a very affluent white thing. At that time, there was... Because he, he trained in uh well he trained in new york but he also trained in tokyo Mm -hmm. he's you know he has that like mad genius streak in him right he like kind of hit like psychological rock bottom he goes to tokyo and decides that he's going to live in a halfway house and work in a noodle shop and eats like convenience store food for like a year (laughs) yeah exactly it's you know he just goes full out you know full out dropout right and you know one thing to i've heard a lot is surprisingly that in japan um, American vegetarians have a really hard time. They're, they don't have a concept in Japan of vegetarianism that's consistent with the concept of vegetarianism here. Yeah, it's that's bad. a lot of countries. Yeah, I know vegetarians who moved there and they had to basically become pescatarians in order to eat anything and survive. Like, it's pretty serious. And they don't give a shit. They're like, your vegetarianism is a product yeah. of your own culture. Just like, you know, um, I don't serve kosher food or I don't yeah. serve halal or, you know, whatever, like... You know, American vegetarianism has its own little strict rules and they don't fucking apply to me. You know, this is Tokyo. I feel like it's those kind of things that I think piss like it pisses me off just <laughs> thinking about it because of this assumption. You know, I, I that's why I when I watched this show, I was like really resonating with him because I was like, I don't know. He just has this. He just has this weird reductive mind. He's really, really good at taking the temperature of the cultural climate and then going against it. But he knows exactly what he's going against. Yeah. yeah. He knows that point of hypocrisy or that point of contradiction and yeah. fucking with it. Do you think he, he does it from a res- like a respectful place, though? I do. I think he does. I mean, I don't think he's there to... to I don't think he's a troll. No. But I think that he is frustrated and... 
that I, I think a lot of it stemmed from I mean he it's pretty clear in the in the show where it stems from it stems from his time when he was working at Danielle for for Danielle Balou mm-hmm. and you know there's just a real snobbiness and a real canonical way to do French cooking and you probably get abused and it's probably racist as fuck yeah and they probably don't give a shit about any other style of food. They're complete, you know, French, Francophile supremacists or whatever. And everyone else can go fuck themselves. And I think that really formed his views of sort of, you know, cult, like a cultural fascism. He does seem very anti-fine dining. I mean, at times. At times. Like, he's talked about how much he, like, in the one episode, he talked about how much he loves, he loves, like, a Michelin fresh French restaurant just as much as anybody else does. But then in, like, another ep- episode, he's, like, just ranting about fine dining, you know? There's an aspect of race, but there's also an aspect of class there as well, right? As two different dimensions. I mean, you can especially see that in the last episode about Italian stuffed pastas versus dumplings in the way he contrasts these, like, uh, Massimo Batura's, you know, three Michelin star restaurant in Italy versus is this like crazy part of China that no one's ever heard of with this grandma who's wearing this like puffy jacket making these delicious dumplings, right? And then really asking about, again, the question of why is this cost nothing? He traveled all the way there just to like, I mean, he really went out of his way to just to show the love and care and craftsmanship that goes into the making of Asian dumplings because that segment where he's with like um, those old grandmas and it just, it looks like they're at the end of the world because they don't have like, you know, they're wearing their coats indoors. They don't have, she's making all this food for him and they don't have running water and they don't have electricity. And, and she's like cooking this food for him. And then like she he tries to make dumplings too. And like, you know, he just fails at it. He has a fascination with Chinese cooking throughout the show that shows through. I think that he attributes like perfection. With Japan, he associates it with that maniacal dedication to, to, to process, to um, technique and... All the best food to him is in Japan, even the best pizza. I mean, he he broke down in tears after he tried that Tokyo chef's yakitori. And he almost made the yakitori chef cry. <laughs> Did you see that guy? Mm-hmm. The guy was like, I'm about to cry. And I, that was very real. I think he felt like in Japan is where you go to find almost monk-like obsession to perfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But in China, I felt he was like, this. there is a f- source of authenticity in China that's an alternative to right. the Western cultural uh, monopoly of authentic high cuisine. There, because there's so much about it that mm-hmm. he doesn't know, right? I think it's his mystification at this. And China, if you go to China, it's like stepping into a different world. It's just so fucking big. Yeah, he, he kind of demonstrates that in that segment where he's eating that um, interesting food at that place that looks like a tempo with that woman who's um, like the... Yeah, sea cucumber, deer ten- deer knuckle tendon. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Was gonna, yeah. He said he was going to vomit, right? He spit it out in front of the people that served <laughs> And the sea cucumber and all that stuff, yeah. But I don't think he meant it disrespectfully. I think he was like, I honestly can't fucking eat this. But, you know, to, to me, right. like... When I saw that, I was like, yeah, I think that's his fascination with Chinese food. He was like, there is uh, something here that is not related to anything else that he knows. It's something, it's coming from a source of something that he just can't, he doesn't get. So it's it's outside of his the known world of, you know, his culinary world. It's something like alien. And that's actually one of the, the many times in the show where his Americanness comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's definitely mm-hmm. a bunch of times where like, He's no longer just like repping Asian food and repping Asians, but like just being American, like in this case, having a hard time handling these textures that you would not find 
anywhere stateside. Refusing right? to right. eat the donkey meat, right? Like he yeah. wouldn't do that. Yeah, that was very American <laughs> in my mind when I saw that. Yeah. That okay, so that whole part was anything with David show is like that was those yeah. were all my favorite scenes. Like Yes. How have we not talked about the KBBQ the, the barbecue episode yet? You guys have both you guys have both said like that's your favorite was that your favorite favorite episode? Barbecue and fried rice were my favorite episodes. I like the final one. I like the one about dumplings. But yeah, the barbecue one was great. Yeah, that was good. Because um, I, I don't think I think that's the one that had the featured Korean food maybe the most. That or the home cooking one, I think. And I think that just bringing in Stephen Yun and uh, David Cho was uh, was super interesting just to have them kind of talk about it in their own space and uh, do the comparisons as well. Um, I did like that he brought all, brought along uh, David Cho to like a few other destinations like in, in the next few episodes too but well, what did you get out of it um that that i don't know that that pe- the bit about steven yun being like the piece about him and his like walking dead thing and being like the first Ugh. guy ever the first asian guy ever yeah. to have sex with a white woman on, on tv and then they showed the hilarious. scene they, they, they showed the I know. scene <laughs> and and i was like I, I, I couldn't believe that they were putting that out there on the show because i feel like you know here's david chang like flexing his his fame and muscle to get this kind of word out there mm-hmm. where you wouldn't even hear about this sort of representation in any other format, right? Like that was kind of very random non sequitur for the show. Oh, but, but that like, was a very authentic Asian male moment. Like yeah. if you yeah, want to see authentic representation of Asian men, there you go. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> David show is just so, he is so comfortable on camera. He's so mean. And then He's he's so mean in one second, and then in another second, he's like taking chopsticks and he's feeding Steven, who's right next to him. Right. <laughs> That's what like $500 million in Facebook money will do for you if you've got a giant <laughs> yeah. id. He is. You know what else I love about that? Um, he's wearing the same red suit that he took Anthony Bo- he wore when he took Anthony Bourdain to... Um, Sizzler. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same outfit. It's his food it's his food series suit. <laughs> yeah, he loves that suit. Yeah. He does stand up in that suit too. <laughs> does he? Yep. It's, it's yeah. It's, he he and his, like his mom, you see his mom in that episode? She's like Oh, I love his mom. Crazy, like crazier than him. Yeah. She's hilarious. She looks like a concubine from Ching Era Ching Era China. Uh, <laughs> it's cra- you know, she does. And he he looks like the Asian American male devil that stands on your left shoulder telling you what you really want, <laughs> which is why I think he yeah, wears the red suit. Right. I liked, you know, I, my favorite part of that was when they, uh, when he was, expl- David Chang was explaining that his father is a North Korean and his mother is from the very, mm-hmm. very north of South Korea. And then they, the others all together at the same time were like, oh, that explains it. That um, everything <laughs> makes sense now. <laughs> See, what I love is that I love that they don't care that it's probably going to be a majority white audience watching them. They're just right. like, we're going to talk about like, you know, our own little inside jokes in front mm-hmm. of them. Right. And it's like, right. just. Right. deal with it you know asian people talk to each other differently than they talk to white people and not only deal with it but with a knowledge that that that's kind of what they want to see right, right. like i don't want to see if i'm seeing a white show i don't want to see white people acting all fake mm-hmm. say, say what you really want to say you know like if i see a show with black people they but black people speak frankly and openly all the time and i love watching and listening to it even if they do mm-hmm. say fucked up shit about other people including asians i would prefer to see that but mm-hmm. you know, it's so. Like I said, I it, you know, even even Asian American guys. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to this uh, Asian woman 
uh, who I know very well, and her impression of the uh, first couple episodes was like, this dude needs to shut the, you know, shut up with the F-bombs and get to cooking. And I was like, damn, that's very negative. And it wasn't till the home cooking one, the Thanksgiving one, where she was like, okay, you're right. This is a good show. Like that's towards the end, isn't it? No, wait, I watched them all out of order. Never mind. I think it's like the that's third, like the third episode. One. That's yeah. the third episode. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Because I watched Home Cooking last. I was watching them completely out of order. Oh, okay. Home Cooking and Pizza were the last ones that I watched. I, I actually watched Pizza Absolute last. Did you like? I liked mm. Pizza. Interesting. Oh, I skipped that episode because I don't like Pizza. Yeah. So but that's the... why that's why I skipped it all. I just I, I was like, all right, well now I've got nothing left to watch. I guess I'll just watch the Pizza episode. I thought it was brilliant. You know how they had that one? Like I didn't. Was he a real guy? The guy that like represented like Naples and what the rules are for making Neapolitan pizza. Oh, and I don't know. He, he looked like a little, you know, he looked like a little Mussolini, and he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like that fascist pizza yes. fascist. Pizza fascist. I no, I think that's real. Cause like, well, when I first saw that scene, I was like, he looks like he's at some kind of. Because I, for my work, I go to these like food conventions sometimes, and it looks like he was at some kind of convention. And I've seen there's like an Italian section, you know, uh, in these conventions. It's massive, and you do see folks like that who are not coming to represent a pasta or some sauce or some com- a food company, but they're here to represent like a, the association of prosciutto, or the association of whatever. So that is very real, and I think having that in that episode was really key to showing the contrast between the snobbiness. Yeah, it was. And that guy clearly was the result. I mean, what created that guy? You know, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, all this shit. And by the time, I bet you when Pizza Hut and Papa John's started opening branches in Italy is when that guy rose to power. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That guy, they were like, we need to elect pizza fascist to the parliament right now. And we need to start adopting (laughs) fucking standards, guys. The, the ending of that was indicative of that. Like, I knew that I would like the show after that first episode because, like, it took place in Lucali, which is, like, right around the corner from me. And at some point, some asshole was like, I toured the entire America and I ate pizza everywhere. I ate at 500 or whatever pizza restaurants. And Lucali in Carroll Gardens is the number one pizza in America. He rose to fame. Lucali's, like, suddenly the number one pizza restaurant in the, in the country by one dude's measure. And they go there and then, you know, they're just talking Mm -hmm. about, they have fascinating conversations. They're just sitting at a table. This is what I love is like when it's either him with the Lucali's guy and Mio, his, his, his buddy, his little like sidekick buddy who writes all the recipe books for him, um, Peter Meehan. And they're just sitting around with some Mm -hmm. wine, maybe eating some pizza, just talking about, just pontificating about the nature of authenticity or, you know, or the tacos one where they're in that. Gustavo Ariano, that that writer, where they're in like the four of it's like Jonathan Gold, the LA to the that really old huge white guy from the LA Times, who's a great writer, um, and me and again they're just packed in that little vintage mm-hmm. car, just driving around LA, look cruising cruising for tacos. Yeah, driving around. Town. Was the tacos episode the one where he starts talking about cultural appropriation? Uh, which what was the conversation? I think he was saying that he was. He's much less judgmental than he used to be if someone who had no prior knowledge or interest in kimchi, for example, suddenly decided that they wanted to make their own batch after watching oh, it on TV. Yeah, I think it was that one. Yeah, I think it was that one. He said that he would be annoyed, but that if people are interested in another culture's food, then we should just let them right. go ahead right. and like, you know, all, all the food outrage that we see online and we talk, uh, you know, it's just so pointless. You know, I trust him on that because 
I think he I'm like him in on in this on that subject, which is like I think the emotional reaction to that, seeing someone appropriate your food is pretty offensive. Because do you remember what he said? He was just like in the in the fried rice episode, he was or was it the fried I forget which one, but it was like when he sees like white people profiting off like Korean food, he was just like, You guys didn't suffer this. Mm-hmm. Like you guys weren't made fun of when you were a kid about how your house yeah. stank. I yeah, I agree with that. That that's where that's where that being territorial about it comes from. It's just like, wait a minute, no, like you were you're, you're the same people that probably made fun of me when you know, and made fun of my school lunch from like years ago and, and now suddenly you want to open up a restaurant and like to make that same exact food. Yeah, I get it. You like you discovered my mom's kitchen is, you know, like mm-hmm. is kind of how it feels. And, yeah. you know, I, I think he does understand that. I mean, obviously, he understands that emotion because he laid it out in such a good way. But I think he's struggling for a like rule, a principle as to why that's not acceptable, because he knows that we do it, too. Or that we should be, we have the right to do that too, right? Yeah. So I think it's kind of like you do have to make that sacrifice in a way just by coming here. You kind of have to be like, all right, they might take your shit. They they don't get into cultural appropriation that much in the show. And I think that's actually a good thing because it's like one of those kind of standard like Asian outrage narratives when it comes to... I think he just asks the questions, which is... And and like they never really come to... They never come to a definitive answer. Um, like Like the whole thing is just all about how it's better to ask questions than to try to come up with answers. Yeah, and I don't think he's particularly interested in appropriation because that's all he does. You know, he doesn't really he doesn't really cook Korean shit. He, right. He he went to China and Japan and fuses that with you know locally sourced American products like Berkshire pork, or he'll do a te- like Nishi is Korean mm-hmm. Italian. Um, he goes around bastardizing other people's shit left and right. So he's the ultimate appropriator, and uh, you know that shit that's not a problem, right? But it's it's not a problem because he did it. I mean, it's a vastly different thing between, like, a white chef doing it and an Asian chef doing it. I think it's very different. If David Chang and Momofuku was a white empire, like, mm-hmm. I would be pissed. I would, too. Oh, they did do a bit about that in the barbecue one, where the towards the end, where those two white guys opened up this super That's successful right. chain of, like, soul food. Or not soul food, but, like... It was hot chicken. It was hot chicken. Hot chicken, yeah. And, and uh, they, they, you know, and he, he was asking... Um, the the woman who had the original, the black woman mm-hmm. who has like the original stand, how she felt about it, and she kind of had swallowed her pride to say, "Look, you just got to accept that. It's not there's not there's no rule against that." Right. And I think that's a lesson we got to learn too. Asians is kind of like, look, they're gonna take your shit, and there's nothing you could do to stop it. You know, and it's not like Asians don't take white shit and make it our own too. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it was actually one interesting thought I had about that segment with the. Uh, the old hot chicken, the new hot chicken was, I thought it was really interesting how the question was like received given his own race, right? Him being an Asian American. Because you imagine that if you talk to those two people and ask the same question, but you were white or you were black, it would come off very differently, right? Like if you were black, it would come off almost as like as an accusatory thing, right? And the response you might get is different. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if mm-hmm. like by being an Asian American and kind of you know, like trying to bridge this these two groups of you know whites and blacks in america that he might get a more authentic answer or a different kind of answer because he's kind of coming from a neutral place you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely i think that's a huge effect right now that's like i've had this conversation with a friend before about around the time Mm -hmm. that trump had won i think we had this conversation about asians playing this sort of like 
bridge role. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. Where every side can kind of see, like the black people see us and they see, oh, see, you're, 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 you're a minority. Right. You're an immigrant. Right. Mm-hmm. So you'll understand my side. And the white people are like, yeah, but you're like, where you're from, you're like white people, right? Like, you're, <laughs> you're a raging capitalist and you're like, you know, you side with white people. You vote right alongside white people. You live alongside white people. You date white people. You're like right. white. You're like honorary white. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I wonder if, like, that's why he, he's kind of like the, almost the perfect host for this sort of show because of this racial aspect to it. Yeah. And I, I, and I think that unlike Eddie Huang, he doesn't come across as predisposed towards black culture because he appropriates hip hop left and right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, he's not like a black, it's not, he's not like a yellow dude dressed up like a black guy. Yeah. And nor does he seem particularly like white apologist. Mm hmm. I think he's Asian. I think that's what I'm saying about him. Like, he is one of the most, to me, compelling Asian-American figures out there. Yeah. Because to me, he truly strikes me as an original, mm-hmm. an authentic Asian-American, you know? Um, I didn't think I would say that about anyone, but I really... Something about him resonated, or I was like, this guy is an authentic Asian-American. He's one of the first that I've ever seen. I was actually really nervous when I went into the Slack and said, you guys have to check out this show because it's really good because I was expecting... I was expecting te- I was expecting Teen to find something... Um, to nitpick? Something wrong with it that I didn't find. <laughs> ah, like you bought it and then I and then I was able to crush your dreams because he's you know no yeah I think it's because we had that we had that conversation about David Chang like the day before What what did I say something bad about him? You didn't say anything good. <laughs> I I really did not have any predisposition to like him because I thought I I just find Momofuku to be not my thing. Yeah. And I and and I know that others in the slack were kind of like Anything associated with that guy was is garbage, you know, and because it's it is it is, you know it's hipstery, you know. I mean, that's a part of part of that whole thing is is how he has managed to launch his empire. I mean, he's very he's very like multi platform. He knows he knows how to grab people's attention, and it's like you know he he's got he had that magazine, then he had like the books, and then he's got the TV show, and then he's got like you know all of his friends are very hipstery everyone he hangs Mm -hmm. out with so so actually from that like one question i had was do you guys feel like there's something that asian americans can learn from specifically him and the show about representation and how we can actually do more great stuff like ugly ugly delicious yes absolutely i would say that what i learned or what i was starting to feel i was learning was that you know people should not at all shy away from the deep questions like yeah uh-huh. he t- to me like you know i i feel like there's a little bit of a philosopher in him i know that that's saying a lot right but like i do feel in a sense he's cut from like philosopher cloth yeah he d- he is cuz he asks it's like the uh, the amount of things that he was able to cover is just uh you know, like every single, every single, he did it so well where he tied in each food to some, some different conversation every time. You know, like the fried rice episode, it opens up with this whole questioning, like if our benchmark is Americanness, if our benchmark for Americanness is apple pie, you should act, ask yourself how often you eat Chinese food versus how often you eat apple pie. Like there was that whole segment at the beginning where she she talks about how there's like more Chinese restaurants in America than McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, and a KFC combined. 
Mm-hmm. And then like how General Tso's chicken and egg rolls are just indigenous to America. You don't find them in China. And then how 364 days a year, Americans eat Chinese food. And then only one day do they eat turkey. It really explores like all the anti-Asian and like all the other racism in how Westerners like like that New York Times uh, food critic that was talking about how for her predecessor, European fine dining was like the most respected and held to the most esteem. But Asian food was just seen as inferior and cheap and dirty. And it's like there was no reason for it to be seen that way. So you have to think about why is it, it like he asks, like, do you have a problem with the food or do you have a problem with the people? You don't walk away with it with this nice, comfortable feeling of we're all one. You walk away with it like, what was he getting at? And mm-hmm. this fundamental question of why does why does the Italian dumpling cost so much more than the Asian dumpling? There is... At this point, I don't think from the series any satisfying answer to that question, which is why the last line is, hmm, right? Like the judge I mean, I of the think that we all know. We all, we all know why. But why do we all know it, right? Because, right. see, that's the thing is, like, we all know it, but why do we know it? Because ultimately it is just bias. Mm-hmm. But it's not – you know, think about it. It's actually a little bit more complicated because it's not just necessarily racism because – for example, like Japanese food goes for sky high prices in the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, English food, there's no such thing. You know, like there, you know, I do know that there's a, there are some uh, there's a there's a couple Nordic restaurants and they've tried to open very high end Nordic dining here in the in the in the guys, in, you know, in the style of Noma and they don't do well. The only Nordic restaurants that do well are pretty cheap. They're, it's not just racism. There's something a little bit more than just racism. You know, like Asian food can sell for very expensive, just not Chinese mm-hmm. food, not Filipino food, not Vietnamese food, mm-hmm. just Japanese. Mm-hmm. You know, I still I felt like that that question was it's getting I don't know what it was getting at, but it, it got it was. And then the way it ended between sort of showing the dumpling in, in China versus in, in Italy and how they are in some ways completely identical, like in the material realm. They're completely identical. Like she tells this whole story about the wonton, about the tortellini and how it's shaped after. The belly button. Alleged, Venus, yeah. The belly button of Venus and all this <laughs> stuff. And she, and she says it with this self-satisfied smile, like, and then it's shaped like a heart because it's about love and, and life. fertility. And he looks at it and he's like, that's a wonton. How is that not a fucking wonton? <laughs> that's what I love about him. You know, you can't sell him up the river. He was like, I sell dreams. You see, I'm the one behind the curtain. And I want to know why it works. Like, don't tell me about Venus's belly button. I can come up with a better story than that. You know, like, <laughs> there's just something so like, don't bullshit me about this guy. That is so compelling to me. Yeah, we definitely need more of that. We all loved the show. I mean, I was really surprised to see such a negative review from from you know who. Can we say it? Oh my god, we go ahead and say Mike Hale? Yes, Mike Hale Hale of the New York York Times. Times. (laughs) Yes. His bullshit review. (laughs) Did he even I don't think he watched the whole I don't think he watched the whole series, to be honest. He was very selective in what he chose to praise or um or hate in the show, right? Like the, the thing that bugged me the most that I got increasingly irritated about was reading the review about how he felt that like there were way too many whites and Asians on the show, yada yada. And 
you know, not enough, not enough black people, despite their culture being described. And then I'm, and then I'm watching the episode about fried chicken. I'm like, yo, like the representation's all here. Then they go into deep racial issues. Uh, were you? Did you just skip this episode? I was, I was super angry about that. I'm not angry about it just because like, he, he's a known quantity. He's a known <laughs> quantity. He's the guy. He's half Korean. Mm-hmm. He's half Korean, and he talks about that. He raises that point when it's convenient. And when that whole Daniel Day Kim Grace Park thing with CBS went down, that's the guy that took to the front page and wrote a whole thing about how I'm the perfect guy to to uh, talk about this because my you know I was born in Hawaii and I watched every single episode of Hawaii Five O. Oh my god! And I can tell you right now that they're not worth the money. They're not that central to the show. Uh. I'm like, the fuck. And he was like, you know, this show isn't about Asian representation anyway. And plus, it yeah, you know, it gets Hawaii wrong. I mean, if you're going to get Hawaii right, nah, you have to do, look for another show. And then he was the one that, like, recently uh, I saw a post on the internet about how he had – he and the other television critics at New York Times had put out their best of 2017 lists. Mm-hmm. One woman did her best, and it was like all the best American shows. Mm-hmm. And then someone else did her, it was all the best. His was the best international shows. Okay. Okay? He picked one, I think it was Signal, said that Signal is a Korean drama, and it was the only Asian or non-white show on the list. And he said, this is the affirmative action selection. Um, <laughs> oh, my here. God. He's like, I'll put it here because admittedly it's pretty good. K dramas are usually, you know, melodramatic and unwatchable. And it's super, it, it's it's super fucked up, right? Because this guy is on the New York Times. It's a huge platform, and mm-hmm. he's half Asian. He's giving them cover to shit on this huge, like, important swath of culture that's becoming increasingly big in America as well. And and he's just kind of crapping and everything. Like, do we? Do, I mean, do we straight up think he's a self hater? I do. Yeah. I think though that. I think that it's been, you know, someone, um, I think Mark showed me this article about how, like, the New York Times television uh, staff is really well known to be shit compared to all the other major newspapers, which is a terrible thing because television is actually, television is actually, like, super important these days. It's not like... This is a guy that's like watched every episode of Hawaii Five O. Like, how do you have time to binge the good shit if you're watching the crap? You know. <laughs> and so to me, I like this is what I saw. I was like, he is like the Duke quarterback. He's like, it's the right school but the wrong sport. Like, no one cares about the New York Times. <laughs> if they're gonna clean it up, they're gonna have to get rid of this guy. He's gonna have to go. Yeah, that's that's definitely the the big like lesson I learned from the show is that I I think we all everybody already knows that like as Asians in America, food is a great entry point into talking about culture like very natural very easy for the reasons you described but i think the show taught you that food's also a great entry point for talking about race right and identity and authenticity as well um and i think david chang is is offering like a kind of vocabulary or a a, like a guide into how to ask those questions to get those conversations going yeah and it is because you can't you cannot politely talk about sex right that's Right. right and food and sex are very related and sexual politics is very important but you can't talk about it directly mm-hmm. which is why i think we use the t- term food porn you know like i think that there is a very almost conscious um or if it's subconscious just barely association between the two so it's a very powerful topic so that pretty much wraps it up for this episode of escape from plan a as always you should check out our articles and our fuck yeah fridays on planamag.com and we'll see you next week bye